This morning we're going to continue our series uh, called Marks of a Healthy uh, Church. And the mark that we're going to speak about this morning is evangelism. What is uh, evangelism? But before we get started, I want to pray for us together one more time. Oh, Father, you are good and you do good and you have saved us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, you command us to go and to make disciples of all nations because your word, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And so, Lord, we just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be obedient to that great command, that great commission, Lord, that we would proclaim the good news of what you have done and watch you uh, extend your saving work, God, in the world through us. That is our great desire. We just pray you do a mighty work in us, God, in this community, in our friends, our acquaintances, our loved ones, God. You are mighty to save. And we pray, oh God, we would be the vehicles of your saving grace to others. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you do, I want you, I want to introduce you to a man named John Harper. John Harper was a, a pastor in Scotland uh, who ministered in the late 18, early 1900s. And uh, at one point, he spent uh, three months ministering here in the States. Uh, at the Moody Church uh, in Chicago, a very famous church there, uh, during which he experienced one of the most wonderful revivals uh, in its history there. And uh, he returned back to Britain, and he wasn't in Britain uh, very long when uh, they asked him to return to continue ministering among them uh, there in Chicago. And so he quickly made arrangements for himself and his six-year-old daughter to go back to America on board a ship called the Lusitania. However, they decided to delay their departure one week so that they could have the experience of sailing on a new ship going on her maiden voyage called the Titanic. On Sunday the 14th of April 1912, the Titanic at 11.40 p.m. struck an iceberg in the middle of the North Atlantic. As the call was issued for passengers to vacate their cabins, Harper wrapped his daughter in a blanket and told her that she would see him again one day and passed her to one of the crewmen. After watching her safely on board one of the lifeboats, he removed his life jacket and gave it to one of the other passengers. One survivor distinctly remember hearing John Harper shout, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. Harper knew that believers were ready to die, but the unsaved were not ready. Harper then ran along the decks, pleading with people to turn to Christ. And with the ships sinking, he called the orchestra to play, Nearer my God to thee. Gathering people around him on deck, he knelt down, and with holy joy in his face, he raised his arms in prayer. As the ship began to lurch, he jumped into the icy waters and swam frantically to all that he could reach. Uh, swam frantically to all he could reach, beseeching them to turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Um, 
Finally, as, as, as hypothermia set in, John Harper sank beneath the waters and passed into the Lord's presence at the age of 39 years old. Four years later, a young Scotsman by the name of Aguilla Webb stood up in a meeting in Hamilton, Canada, and gave the following testimony, quote, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of wreck, near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, the, the waves after that bore him away, but strange uh, to say, brought him back a little later. And he said to me, are you saved now? <laughs> no, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Shortly after he went down and there alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's, Harper's last convert. Apparently, God wanted Webb's amazing testimony to be shared because only seven people were plucked from the water that night to join the survivors on the lifeboats, and Webb was one of them. <clears throat> what is evangelism? It is proclaiming the good news that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And there is no greater news to share. And it is an urgent message. And as John Harper said, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. If you know Christ, we're ready, we're okay. But if we don't, if you don't know Christ, you're not okay. You may feel safe, but you're not safe. And the worst thing that could happen is we enter into a Christless eternity. And so we have a mission as part of the church to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we discuss what is evangelism. What is evangelism? So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. From 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 20, just two verses. Verse 20. <clears throat> Actually, we'll start in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to talk about evangelism this morning. And as we've done in the past couple weeks, I find it helpful when we're discussing something, not just to say what something is, but to say what something isn't. So first what I want to do is say what evangelism isn't. 
And uh, there's a lot we have to combat when it comes to evangelism today. There's lots of challenges that we face in our culture. So the first thing that evangelism isn't is evangelism isn't imposition. Evangelism isn't imposition. There's two angles we want to look at concerning uh, that evangelism isn't imposition. First, in our quickly secularizing culture, there are many people who would say that to evangelize, that is to intentionally try to persuade other people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe in the truth, the sole truth of Christianity, that that act in and of itself is wrongheadedly imposing our views on others. Well, is that true? Well, my answer to that would be this. It depends what you mean by imposing. Is a, po- is a doctor imposing his opinion on you when he says that the only way to cure your cancer is through chemotherapy? You see, such a claim, that the, the, the claims that we're just imposing our view on others fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the Christian claim. Because the Christian claim, that is, the work of evangelism, involves proclaiming the message that God has objectively inter- interacted, has objectively um, uh, acted in the world through the person of Jesus Christ. That is, evangelism is the proclamation of objective claims concerning past and present reality. What, what I'm saying is this, is that when we, as we as Christians, our claim as Christians is not that we have merely found some, a nice religion that makes us feel better about ourselves. That is not what the Christian claim is. We are not going to people saying, hey, I found something that works for me, you should try it too. That's not the Christian claim. The Christian claim is that the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago in the land of what we now call modern-day Israel really lived. He really died. He really rose from the dead. He really appeared to his followers over a period of 40 days. He really ascended back into heaven before their own two eyes. He really poured out the Holy Spirit on high. And he and he's really coming back. And all this really makes a difference in your life. Amen. Because we're not saying that this is a nice little fairy tale story. We're saying this really happened. And therefore, every person in humanity has to reckon with the historical reality of the man named Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Since this event has happened, we are not as Christians just pushing a religious opinion. We are saying that God has really, in in full reality, physically, manifestly entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ and said... And said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And to ignore Jesus is to reject him. So it totally misunderstands the Christian claims because no Christian has ever claimed to be pressing our opinion. It doesn't matter about opinions. You shouldn't care about my opinion. You should care about what's true. And if Jesus Christ really truly did come, live, die, and rise from the dead, then that makes an eternal difference in your life. So it's not about opinions. It's about what's true. So the claims of Christianity are not mere religious opinions, but claims of historical fact of God intersecting the world through Christ and appointing him as the head of a new kingdom and a new humanity which shall soon overthrow this present age. So the first way that we see evangelism isn't imposition 
is to understand that as Christians, we're not peddling a religious opinion. We're peddling the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming it. The second angle to which we can look at that evangelism isn't in position is addressing the times where we might say that Christians have at times have tried to wrongly impose Christianity on others. And what I mean by that is this. I believe that some, sometimes, not so much today, but in the past, in, in a zeal and a passion, most of the time with the right heart, to get converts or to win souls, at times in the past people have used what we could call manipulative tactics in order to get a decision or to get somebody to pray a prayer. So that, so that then they could go and report and say, hey, we had so many souls saved today. And that was, that was a problem, and it has been a problem. And it's, an, it's a problem today because half the people you run out to said, I, I was saved because I prayed a prayer 25 years ago. But there's no fruit of salvation in their life, but because someone led them through the prayer, they really think they're saved and you can't convince them otherwise. That's a problem. So... We are falsely, wrongly imposing Christianity if we try to use manipulative tactics to try to just get someone to pray a prayer to make a decision for Christ. Christianity, uh, another way we could wrongly impose Christianity is when we try to expect non-Christians to act like Christians. In other words, if we preach a Christian morality without preaching Christ, we're preaching a false gospel. People who don't know Christ cannot act like a Christian. It's impossible. Do not have the Holy Spirit enabling us to, to turn from our sin, to, to, to convict us of our sin, and to change us, and to change our desires. So trying to impose Christianity this way is wrong because it's impossible. We cannot impose Christianity on someone any more than, than, we, than a straitjacket can make a serial killer a good person. If all Christianity was, was not doing bad things, then a straitjacket can make a good Christian. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not about doing good things. Christianity is having your heart supernaturally changed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. It's about becoming a new person. It's about seeing Jesus Christ with eyes of faith and seeing that all the world belongs to him and that he is worth everything we might possibly have to give up to have him. Therefore, I will turn from my sin, turn from the world, turn to him and embrace Christ as the greatest treasure to be gained in all of existence. That is supernatural. It's a change of heart. It's a change of desire. Paul says in Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with somebody in need. So what is Paul's conception of Christianity? Is, does, the, does, does Christianity merely to make a thief stop being a thief? Well, that's part of it, but it's more than that. A straitjacket can make a thief stop being a thief. What's, what's the goal of Christianity? Christianity is to change the thief from wanting to steal altogether and in fact changing his heart to making him want to work hard doing honest work so that he can then help others who are really in need. That's what Christianity does. It changes your heart into a different person. And so, and you can't, that cannot be imposed. 
So Christianity, first of all, is not imposition. Secondly, I mean, evangelism isn't imposition. And secondly, evangelism isn't personal testimony. Evangelism isn't personal testimony. Of course, I love personal testimonies. And I love personal testimonies. And I love to hear how God has changed people's life. I just think we just, we just have to be careful that when we share our testimony with people, we make sure that we include the gospel when we share our testimony. Because sharing our testimony isn't the same thing as evangelism. They're related, but they're not the same thing. So when we share our testimony, we need to make sure that we include how we heard the gospel of Jesus, how he lived, how he died, how he rose from the dead, how he's coming back, and how that truth has made a difference in our life, and how the person that we're sharing with, how they must respond to that truth as well. That's the gospel. Because the danger can be, if we just tell people how God has changed us without sharing the gospel, they may think things like this, and I've heard stuff like this. They'll say things like, well, I'm glad that works for you. I'm I'm really glad that works for you. I'm glad it worked out for you. They're happy for you. But they see no relevance of it for them, for their personal life. And when we share the gospel, what we are saying is that the gospel is relevant to every life because it's rooted in historical reality and in the person of Jesus Christ that we will all have to reckon with one day. It's not just that it works for me. And so when we share our testimony, we must be careful to make sure we share the gospel as well. So evangelism isn't imposition. It isn't personal testimony. And number three, this will not sound strange, evangelism is not the results of evangelism. Evangelism is not the results of evangelism. There's an old-timey word for evangelism. We call it soul winning. I'm going out to win some souls. Would that we did. Would that we went out to win some souls more. However, I I think that's, that's probably not the best phrase to use. I mean, we know what it means. But the reason why I think it's not the best is because when we say I'm going out to win souls, it implies something. If I come back and I didn't win any souls... What does it mean? It means I failed. It means I failed. If, I, if, I, if I'm going soul winning and I don't win souls, that means I failed. Evangelism, that's not evangelism. We shouldn't confuse evangelism with the results of evangelism. And that is what I'm saying is you can be a faithful evangelist. And you could fully please God in your evangelism and you could completely fulfill the task that God has given you of, be, of being an evangelist even if you never win a single soul. Because our job is not to save souls, it's to preach the message. It's God's job to save the souls. So consider the parable of the souls. You know, it, Jesus talked about the souls and we're sowing seed, we're sowing seed. Right? And remember, there's four different kinds of soul. Well, Jesus, we don't, when we're sowing the gospel seed of the truth of Jesus Christ, we don't know what kind of soul people's hearts are. It's a, we can't. We can't know. We're not called to know. We're called to indiscriminately sow this gospel seed of Jesus Christ. You see, we can't look at someone and say, they're a rocky person, I can tell. I know if I share the gospel with them, when the hard times come, they're just going to wither up. It's not even worth my time. You don't know that. Oh, oh, I see them people over there. That's a thorny bunch over there. That's a real thorny bunch. I know if I share with them, they're just going to be choked out by the cares of life. I don't have to share the gospel with them. You don't know. 
You don't know. We're called to preach the message. We let God worry about the growth. We sow the seed. We let God worry about the growth. Our job isn't to be soil testers, but seed sowers. And we need to stop worrying about how people will respond and just start preaching the message. That's all we're accountable to. We're we're accountable for not how people respond to it, but if we were faithful with the message. That's what Paul likens it uh, in the same image in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And so, I believe this truth, well, if we can get it, is really freeing for us. <clears throat> because one of the stumbling blocks for us to share in the gospel, I just think sometimes we just feel so inadequate and we just, we're just worried. Well, what if I don't have all the right answers? What if I say the wrong thing? What if they don't like me after this? What if, what if, uh, what if it's, a, God forbid, it's an awkward conversation? What if, what if, what if, and what if God just wants to tap you and me on the shoulder and say, Hey, Chad, what if evangelism isn't about you? And your inadequacy, but what if it's about me and my power to save? What if, what if it's not up to me to save a single soul, but I just preach the message and let God save the souls? I think that is freeing. It takes all the pressure off. Guess what? You don't have to get it exactly right. You don't have to be the best apologist in the world who knows all the answers to everybody's questions. God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. God can use... God. In fact, God delights to use weak vessels to do His work because guess what? Then He's the only one who can get the glory for it. And so Paul actually says in in Corinthians, he says, I boast all the more in my weaknesses because when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, our inadequacy is not a sign that God can't use us, but it's that prerequisite for God to use us. Because the weaker we are, the stronger God can show himself through us. All we have to do is just open our mouths. That's all we have to do. Uh, in this book, and, and most of this, by the way, is taken from uh, Mark Dever's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, uh, in his chapter on evangelism. And he, he issues this challenge in his book uh, that I, I feel like I really needed to hear. This is what he says. He says, the Christian call to evangelism is a call not simply to persuade people to make decisions, but rather to proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Christ, to call them to repentance, and to give God the glory for regeneration and conversion. We don't fail in our evangelism if we faithfully present the gospel and yet the person is not converted. We fail only if we don't faithfully present the gospel at all. How many times have we wrongly, quote, waited for opportunities rather than made them by simply and lovingly sharing the good news with someone? God's word is powerful. And when we share it, God shows up. 
It may not be always immediate. It may not be obvious, but God is working. And so we sowed the seed indiscriminately. And look, we never know what God's going to do. And most of the time, it's that person that you least expect. That person that you least expect, God gets a hold of. And then you look back and say, I had nothing to do with it. I just delivered the message. And God did the work. So evangelism isn't in position. It isn't personal testimony. It's not the results of evangelism. And so in explaining what evangelism isn't, we've already explained what it is. And that all it is is simply proclaiming the gospel. Two weeks ago, we, we, we preached a whole sermon on what is the gospel. All, the, all evangelism is, is we just deliver the message. We just love people enough to say, to say, hey, can I talk to you something? Can I talk to you something about, about something really important? And talk and share with them about Christ and the truth about Christ. They might want to hear it. They might won't. But it doesn't matter. We just deliver the message. And God does the work. So that's what evangelism is, and this is what evangelism is. It's just delivering the message that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead so that we might be forgiven of our sins and reconciled back to God. And now that we are reconciled back to God through faith in Jesus Christ in our passage, Paul says that God has now entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. And remember, remember that, that line Paul said? Paul said, God making his appeal through us. I want you to think about that for a second. When you share the good news of Jesus and appeal people to follow Christ, Paul, the Apostle Paul says it's not you making the appeal. It is God making the appeal through you. When you share the gospel with someone, you become God's very own mouthpiece to proclaim to people to be reconciled to him. Through faith in Jesus Christ. So now that we know what evangelism is and is, the next thing I want to say is how, how should we evangelize? How should we evangelize? I just want to give us a, a, a number of tips here uh, quickly about how we should evangelize. The first tip about evangelism is this. Number one, don't sugarcoat Christianity. Don't sugarcoat Christianity. There are two ways that immediately come to mind when I think about how we do this. The first is that sometimes what we can do is we can present Christianity as the immediate solution to all your worldly problems. Okay? The reason why this is dangerous is because it's really close to the prosperity gospel. It's true that if you begin making wise decisions in your life over and against the foolish past decisions that you made, it is indeed true that many times your life will get better. But we have to be careful because if we preach that as the gospel, if we sugarcoat Christianity in that way, we, mis- we mislead people into thinking that their greatest problem is their problems that are here and now and not their eternal separation from God due to their sin. We don't want to mislead people by making them think that their worldly problems are more or greater than their most important problem. That is their sin. And besides this, besides this, the reality is, 
And this is where the prosperity gospel fails, that if you believe in Christ, everything's going to go fine with you. You think positive thoughts, your life's going to get better, God's going to bless you, God's going God's to, you know, prosper you and all this stuff. Reality is, there's a good chance that if you follow Christ, your life will get worse and not better. Jesus Christ was the only perfect man who ever lived, and they crucified him for it. The Apostle Paul, in my estimation, was the second greatest person who ever lived, and they lopped his head off for it. Our brothers and sisters who followed the Lord Jesus Christ in the Middle East and other parts of the world, they don't know if they'll make it past tomorrow because a mob might show up at their door because they follow Jesus Christ. If you've, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So the hope of Christianity, yes, thank God many times he does bless us and prosper us in this age, but that's a gift, that's not a guarantee. Our blessings are for the next stage and not for this age. And if you follow Christ, chances are Satan is going to come after you harder than he ever has. And so let's not sugarcoat Christianity and make it think, oh, it's just a solution to all your problems. It solves your, it solves infinitely your greatest problem. Therefore, all your other problems pale in comparison. But it doesn't mean your worldly problems will go away. And the second thing, way we can sugarcoat Christianity is by downplaying the demands of Christ in our lives. Downplaying the demand of Christ on our lives. It's true that the gospel is free. It's free. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift of God that we couldn't possibly earn. That's why Christ had to secure it for us through his perfect life, his death, his sin-paying death, and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus had to secure it. It's free for us because it cost Jesus everything. But here's the key. Even though the gospel is free, even though the saving grace through Christ is free once you receive it, It demands all of you. The gospel will not leave a single stone in your life unturned. And let's not sugarcoat Christianity and act like you can can walk down an aisle or pray a prayer and not have Jesus Christ do some serious renovation in your life. Because let me tell you something, when God really gets a hold of you, he's going to start dealing with you. And you're going to see sin and sinful thoughts and sinful attitudes and sinful actions and areas of your life you didn't even know existed. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful because God's going to expose you. But that's because he's exposing you so he can change you into who he made you to be. And Christianity, without any exposing and repentance of sin, is not real Christianity. Let's not sugarcoat it. Christian life is not easy. It's hard. Try not to sin today and tell me how hard it is. The Christian life isn't easy. It's hard. And God demands all of you. He demands total. The gospel is free. He saves you freely by grace. But once once he's gotten hold of you, he's going to search every area of your life. And bring it under his lordship. Jesus, sometimes I think we make an error In presenting Jesus like Jesus is on his knees begging people to follow him. As if Jesus needs us. Jesus doesn't need us. We need Jesus. Jesus isn't sitting there begging, begging to have more followers as if he's just kind of like some weak, insecure person. Jesus is the king of the cosmos. One day every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, before him. Jesus, in his lifetime, turned away many people. 
And in fact, in Luke 14, this is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That is, your love for Jesus, your love for anything else in the world must so utterly pale in comparison to your love for Jesus Christ that if there is ever a conflict between the love of Christ or the love of any other person, even your most cherished family members, your love of Christ will come first. That's hard. He goes on, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus said, Jesus was not interested in flippant, lighthearted followers. He just wasn't interested in it. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you better count the cost. It's all in. That's why we sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. All in. Are you all in on Jesus? So number one, don't sugarcoat Christianity. Number two, tell them that Christ is worth all the cost. When you evangelize, tell people that Christ is worth all the cost. It's costly, but it's worth all the cost. The famous missionary John, uh, Jim Elliott who was run through by a spear when he landed in Ecuador to, share, to tell the Aka Indians about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wrote in his journal, he, Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's put our treasure in heaven. Let's, what, what matters, what does it matter the cost that it requires of us to follow Christ in this age when all the stuff we can't keep anyways? The cost doesn't matter when in Christ we gain things that we will keep for eternity. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. What's Jesus saying? Jesus saying is that to be in the kingdom of heaven, to know Christ, to know God, to be forgiven of your sins, is a treasure of such unbelievable worth that even if it cost you every single thing you owned on this planet, it would be so infinitely worth it that you'd be glad to make the trade. If Jesus Christ costs you every single dime and everything you loved on this world, let me tell you something, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Let people know that Christ is costly, but it's worth all the cost. 
He's worth all the cost. Number three, express the urgency of the situation. Express the urgency of the situation. When we talk to people about Christ, you know, I, I talked to somebody fairly recently and they just said they weren't ready. The last thing you want to do is enter into Christ's presence not ready. And the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible is that every single day is a gift. We had, we had, we had some young men die just in the past couple of weeks. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking it'll be their last day, but it happens to people every single day. We don't want to manipulate people. We don't want to try to, we don't want to, try to coerce people, but, we do, want, but we, we do have the responsibility to express the urgency of the situation. The gospel is real. The gospel is true. Christ is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins. And you might think you want to sit on this for a while and enjoy some pleasures for a little while, and then you think later you're going to get right with God. But let me tell you something. You might not be guaranteed that day. It's an urgent There's an urgency. Eternity hangs in the balance. Number four tip when we share the gospel is use the Bible. Whenever possible, keep a Bible on hand. Keep a tract on hand that when when you're telling people about Christ, you can point them to actual scriptures. Memorize some some passages that you can use to share the gospel. And why this this is so important is this, is because even though we live in an increasingly secularizing culture where people don't, People don't even know what the Bible says, hardly, much less respect it much anymore. But, but at the same time, there's just something powerful about God's Word. And many people are shocked to find what the Bible actually says, because most of them don't even know what it says. And if you can quote directly from the Scriptures, you're, uh, one of the most powerful things that happen is that when you're quoting the Bible, you're not just giving your opinion, you're giving what the Bible says, you're giving what God has said. So if someone does kind of get a little combative with you, when you quote scripture, what you're saying is you're saying, hey, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with God. This has nothing to do with me. This is what God has said. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. If God says it, that's it. That's all there is to it. He's the boss, not us. He makes the rules. So use the Bible. Number five, build relationships. Build relationships. Because we live in a day of increasing biblical illiteracy and a worldview that is just getting further and farther away from biblical understanding, it's going to be a lot harder to get people to fully grasp the gospel. And so we're going to be able to sow seeds broadly, but God places all kinds of people in our lives at various stages where we don't have to be content to just sow seed, but he's going to put people in our lives that we actually have opportunity to spend more time with and water those seeds. Because in many cases nowadays, it's going to take time to keep, to keep sharing and keep explaining so that things become more clear because it's going to be harder for people to grasp things because the worldview is, is increasingly separate from the Bible. And so be intentional. We've talked about who's your one, and <clears throat> in a few weeks I'm going to, we're going to kick off a series and we're going to push again hard this coming fall about who's your one. We can't do everything, but we can do something for Christ. You can you say, it's hard to share. Yeah, I know, it's hard to share the gospel. Look, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You can tell one person about Jesus. I know you can. God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. God can use us to point one person to Christ. Who's that one person? Build relationships. Water the seeds. Number six. Number six tip is work together. Work together. The best evangelism 
is not just solo evangelism, but it's, it's incorporating our lost friends that we love, our lost friends and family members that we love. It's incorporating them into our family. It's saying, hey, I want you to come over to my house and we'll have supper and we're going to hang out and we're going we're gonna to vacation together and go on dimps together and, and we're going to have get-togethers with my other church family. And you're inviting them and you're incorporating them uh, with, in, into, the lives, into your lives and the lives of other believers. Work together, love on people together to share Christ with them. And finally, the final and most important thing as we share the gospel with others is to pray. Is to pray. Paul, probably one of the most boldest preachers of the gospel who ever lived, said in Ephesians chapter 6, pray for me that I might boldly proclaim the gospel as I ought to speak. Why do you think Paul was so bold? Because he was better than you and me? No, because he prayed that God would make him bold. And he asked other people to pray for him that God would make him bold. That's why he was bold. Not because he was stronger than you and me, but because he leaned on God and God gave him the strength. And so we pray and say, as, as you're walking up to have the conversation with someone, you're saying, God help me, God help me, God help me, God help me. And he will. He will. And, as, and, we, and we pray, God save him, God save him, God save him, God save him. Because you can't convince them. Only you can. You just deliver the, only he can. You just deliver the message. That's why we pray for God to work and for God to act. And so these are tips for evangelism. We can do it. I wrote in, my, I wrote in the church letter uh, in, in the bulletin today. The church can't die, but local churches can. And if God is not using us to draw people to himself, reality is 50 years from now, where will we be? But if we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and again, we can't save people, but I believe if we're just faithful to sow the seed, God's going to save people. He's going to do it. And only he's going to get the glory for it. And finally, as I close this morning, there may be somebody in here, maybe you, I don't know. Surely in this room, not every single one is a true believer in Jesus Christ. I just want to say this morning, that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. John Harper's dying breath to that man hanging on some driftwood in the frigid cold of the North Atlantic told that young man, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It was true then, it's true today. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that you have entrusted to us the ministry. 